Amen. Father, your way is better than ours, your way. Your salvation is more beautiful than anything this world has to offer us. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to bow down, help us to worship you. Lord, help us to praise you as you reveal to us through this text the beauty of the Lord Jesus and the beauty of humble submission that he is calling us into. Because you love us, Lord, and you want us to have life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in First uh, Samuel, verses eighteen and nineteen, or chapters eighteen and nineteen. Last week was the the epic battle of David and Goliath, and now in the aftermath of that, we're going to see David. The, the scene picks up with David returning from that that battle, and he now seemingly is all set up to enjoy a life of victory, a life of success in Saul's court. And let's see what happens. I want you have everybody to remain seated. This is a long reading again. It's, uh, it's two chapters. It's the same verse count as chapter 17 last week. And it's, it's obviously one story. The beginning and the end let us know that there's one story. So it's long. Uh, but if we don't get do anything else right today, at least we've read a big chunk of God's Word. Amen? So let's listen intently together. To God's word, this is 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19. Uh, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, even his sword and the bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did, as he did day by day, and Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, 
Here's my elder daughter, Mereb. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, well, thus shall you say to David. The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and he killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins which were given in full number to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. And so Saul was David's enemy continually. And then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said, Let not the king sin against David, his servant, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it. You rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again, and David went out and fought the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. 
But Michal, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, bring him up here in the bed to me that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And so Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me and thus let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered to Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. And he and Samuel went and lived in Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time and they also prophesied. And then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Saku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus, it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm telling you, Hollywood is missing out by not doing the David story. If they would just do this story, just word for word, right out of the Bible, best movie ever made, wouldn't it be? Amazing. So, so when, I, when I started seminary, uh, I really believed, I really thought with all my heart that all I had to do, all I had to do was learn the arguments, learn the logical arguments behind the doctrine in the Bible, and then I would just present those logical arguments to people uh, even from the original text, and they would like see that and just voluntarily line themselves up with what God's word had said. And that was all it would take. Because we had been in situations in churches before where people didn't even know sound doctrine and people were hurt by that. We saw people like really getting hurt from the fact that the pastors and elders and, and people that we served with just didn't really know the Bible. And so I, all I thought was if I could just learn them, if I could just present them in a way that's, that, it, that is convincing, then everybody will say, oh, wow, that's what it says. I'm going to line myself up with what God's word says. Uh, Well, over the course of my early pastoral ministry, there were a few things that knocked that silly idea right out of my head. Uh, But here's one of them. There was a a girl very close to us who was in an abusive relationship got out of it, and we wrapped her up in fellowship, we wrapped her up in community, and we wrapped her up in the pastoral support uh, of the church, and just loved on her and helped her heal uh, in a supportive 
environment, and everything was great. I even got a beautiful letter from her telling us how wonderful the idea, how she understood church and how church functioned and how uh, pastors and our friends and, and, and the community of believers hold us accountable and help us to walk in our faith. Uh, everything was absolutely great uh, until, until she met the non-Christian boyfriend. And this Christian girl, this nice Christian girl who loved Jesus, Jesus was number one, uh, ended up moving out, moving in with her boyfriend before they were married. Uh, and I went to her with the truth of what the Bible says. This is not only, this is not only dangerous, but this also, uh, this, is, this is blaspheming the name of the Lord to the culture around and not only sets us up as being hypocrites. If we don't, take the Christian sexual ethics seriously? How do we expect, and we preach, every, we ask everybody else to do so, and we also use political muscle to try and force people to do it. That's so damaging to the church. I went to her, her friends went to her, uh, close friends went to her and presented truth to her, and it was amazing how quickly I went from this loving pastor who showed her the beauty of the church to an arrogant, judgmental, legalistic control freak who was judging her. And then she systematically began to cut off every one of her friends who deeply loved her in order to preserve what she wanted to be true. Super sad. Why? How does that happen? How, why is it? Nice Christian girl, Jesus was number one. How is it that she responded so poorly to truth? Uh, this story of Saul, we're going to see a similar thing in his life. He's responding poorly to truth. But even more than that in this passage, we're going to see the faithfulness of God, how God is faithful, not just to David, but God is being faithful to Saul, faithful all across the board in protecting his people, even from their sin, uh, and also he's going to show us in this a beautiful picture of, the, of humble submission to God's word and how much better that salvation is than the salvations that we chase after. So the big idea, uh, the big overarching theme of this passage is this, is that whenever this is what God wants us to know. Whenever, whenever we are tempted to get mad about the truth, remember that God's protection compels us into the beauty of humble submission. Whenever we get mad, whenever we're tempted to get mad about the truth, remember that the protection of God compels us into the beauty of of humble submission. Let's look at that one part at a time. Now, whenever we get mad about the truth, now Jesus says in, in, in John's gospel, he says, the truth will set you free. Well, what he doesn't say is that first, it's going to make you really, really mad. <laughs> Think about that. One of the, one of the, re, one of the main, one of the, Big convincing evidences for me that Christianity was true uh, as I was a, an agnostic coming into the faith was the, was the, immense, the monumental amount of 
of critical and academic effort to disprove it. There are, um, there are no vast libraries of anti-Buddhist thought. There are no vast libraries. There are no PhD mills that are churning out doctorates teaching and expressing higher critical study of the Bhagavad Gita. <laughs> no one gets angry about the doctrine of reincarnation. Why is that? The doctrine of reincarnation is awful. It means that you are, you are necessarily subject to a million lifetimes of suffering. Man, that's awful. People, get mad. People never get mad about that. Though. Why? Because subconsciously we all know it's not true. It's not threatening. It doesn't threaten the salvations that we want to hold on to. But all the time people trip on the idea of Christianity, trip on the idea of grace, because first it implies that we need it, but because it's true. And it's a truth that calls people to let go of their idols, the thing they think is salvation in favor of what God is saying, salvation. When you threaten to take away someone's idol, they get mad, they get defensive, they might even attack. And so what is it, what is, um, what does salvation look like for Saul in this? What is he, why is he so mad? Saul wants to keep on being king. He wants to be king. He wants the power, the glory, the recognition, uh, all of the earthly glory and beauty that, he, that, that comes with. He wants desperately to be king, and he wants to pass on his dynasty to his son, Jonathan. But he also knows truth. Samuel has also told him, point blank, God has taken the kingdom away from you and has given it to someone else, and now Saul has just enough evidence to start figuring out just who that someone else might be. And so there's this tension in the text. What is Saul going to do? Is he going to willingly submit to what he knows to be true, or is he so emotionally attached that he's going to fight against it? Will he even risk important relationships as he fights harder and harder and harder against God's truth until eventually God has to supernaturally step in to his life and the life of David. Why is it? And that's what he does, right? Why is it? Why is it that Saul's reacting so poorly to truth? Why is it that uh, my friend reacted so poorly to truth? What was my big lesson coming out of seminary? My big lesson, the big lesson was that the reason my friend didn't respond to truth, the reason that people don't respond to truth is because people form deep-set emotional bonds with the lie when they come to believe that the lie offers salvation. Which is how idolatry works, which is how Satan operates to lure nice Christian girls and guys out of the church, away from pastoral support, away from the friendships that will speak truth to them, uh, and away from the encouragement of one another to engage in the beauty of humble submission. And look, no one gets a pass on this. 
No one gets a pass on this. This is not something that other people uh, are struggling with. This is something that we all, there's something in every one of our lives that the Bible cuts across. If you, uh, if, if God never contradicts you, that's a big uh, indicator that you are not worshiping the true God, but you are worshiping a projection of what you want God to be. Somewhere in the Bible, God is going to cut across what you want. The truth is going to cut across what you think you so desperately need. And it's in that uh, moment that we can become so angry. Think about it. Why do people become so angry when their sexual freedom is threatened? Why do people become so angry when they feel like God is taking something so important away from them? Why do they get angry about money when the Bible just directs us about how to use our money in stewardship, to give and to support the work of the church? Why is it that people, when they are confronted uh, with the reality that the church has failed miserably in our obligation to social justice in the world, to not to live out the obligations of the gospel when secular people uh, come to us with these categories of social justice, when people are confronted in the church with racism in the church, with white supremacy in the church, people get so mad because it cuts across, makes us uncomfortable, and people get mad, and they defend, and they, they, they try to discount it, they attack it. Everybody suffers from this, man, and, you know, what God wants us to know in this is not, uh, it's not this is not shaming again. God is warning us that we're all so susceptible to believe a lie at some part in our life that is going to bring pain and suffering. And so these are warnings to us. God, because he loves us, this is, God has put these warnings out for us like billboards, like signposts, right? Because God calls us what? God calls us sheep. It's not a super complimentary title. We have a tendency to wander off and make put ourselves in vulnerable situations. So God, because he loves us, is continually placing these realities before us. And so there's, big, there's some warnings in here. Warning is, warning is this, that truth, and this is the lesson I had to learn coming out of seminary, the warning uh, is that truth, as much as it has the power to bring life, it also has the power to harden hearts, even believers. That's how God hardens hearts. If you read the Bible, the passage is talking about God hardening people's hearts. He doesn't lie to them. He presents them truth. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, what? I represent Yahweh. He wants he, uh, the God of heaven and earth. He's asked for his people to go out into the wilderness to worship him. He's presenting that truth to Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardens his heart against it. He reacts negatively to that truth. And so there's a warning there for us that we are susceptible to have our hearts grow cold, to quench the Holy Spirit if we believe these lies more than we believe the word of God. Whatever it may be, wherever it is, the Bible crosses paths with your desires. But the second part, really, uh, the second part is part is warning. But I'm convinced 
it's more blessing. And this is the most fascinating part of this whole text to me. At the end, look at that. At the end of the story, what happens? God, it gets so bad that God steps in to stop it. But does he step in with fire? There's a story about Elijah in the New Testament where men come to him, a wicked king sends groups to Elijah three times in a row, fire from heaven comes down and consumes them. At the end, when Saul has not been able to successfully kill David and he goes personally to do it with all the forces that he has behind him, God doesn't come down in fire. God drops his Holy Spirit on them three times and then drops his Holy Spirit upon Saul finally. And what does Saul do? Saul takes off his robe, takes off his armor, strips himself of all of his royal vestments, puts himself in a right relationship with God and prophesies glorifying God. That's how the story ends. In a minute, we're going to see that's also how the story begins. Jonathan does the same thing. In the beginning of the story, Jonathan strips himself of his royal vestments into the beauty of humble submission. At the end of the story, God comes not with fire, but with spirit and restrains Saul and causes him to divest himself of the thing he's so desperately gripping to in favor of worshiping and prophesying and glorifying God. And so I think... You know, Galatians 5.17 says that there's this war between flesh and spirit and spirit and flesh. And it says to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And that also includes the spirit's restraint on us from getting as, doing as badly as we would otherwise. The whole world is under the spirit's control, but believers too, God is protecting us and will promise to protect us even in our sin. And that is the most compelling reason why uh, when we're tempted to get mad about truth, we should remember God's protection over us. We should remember God's protection over us. Second point. Uh, Now, looking at David. The The more Saul tries to kill David, the better off David gets. As you read the story, it almost is kind of funny. Uh, there's Saul, in all of his murder attempts on David, in this one short passage, he goes from secret murder attempts to public open murder attempts, from uh, getting people involved in it. Uh, he First, he tries to kill David by sending him off to war, which, ironically, is the same thing that we find later David does to Bathsheba, yet successfully. And so I think that's a, uh, a, a highlight for us to remember that it's not the sin so much as it's the repentance that matters most. Uh, he tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. He sends David out to war uh, to try uh, and to have the Philistines kill him. And what, the, what happens is David instead gains the love of all Israel and Judah and Saul. It says, uh, becomes afraid in verse 12. And then verse, 12, uh, verse 15 his fear turns to fearful awe. David's up, Saul goes a little down. Second attempt, uh, Saul tries to uh, use the marriage of his daughter and the bride price 
of a hundred Philistine foreskins to lure David into battling Philistines that will kill him. Uh, think about that. He's, Saul has disintegrated to the point where he's willing to throw away his relationship with his daughter in order to, to preserve his throne. Can you imagine purposefully hooking, matching your daughter up with someone you intended to kill? How damaging that would be to her. Now, I tell my daughters all the time, if you marry a bad guy, I will absolutely kill him. But that's different. (laughs) This is Saul purposefully setting her up with someone in order to kill her and the damage that that might cause in the relationship. And what happens? It backfires again. Uh, Michal loves David, and David ends up becoming family, even more entrenched in his position. So Saul goes from secret, undercover attempts to kill David to open attempts to kill David. He now again, second time, throws a spear at David. First time you throw a spear at somebody, okay, maybe it's because they're crazy and they're raving. Second time you throw a spear at somebody, now David knows what's up. Saul's trying to kill him, so he runs and hides. Saul has to then enlist openly his servants and his son, his son Jonathan to try to kill him. At first, Jonathan convinces him not to, and then... Uh, Saul sends assassins. David escapes by the help of his own daughter. Saul damages his relationship with Michal even more. David then and, then, and then Saul goes personally to kill David with all of his men and all of his army and all of his power. And at that point, God steps in supernaturally to protect David by restraining him with the Holy Spirit. Here's what I want you to see in this couple of things. First thing is this, that, that most of God's protection over David through these stories uh, is by what seems to be very natural means, and David has no idea that God is behind all of this protection over him. Uh, which makes me think, first of all, how many times has God protected me from some awful thing and I had no idea about it? I think of all, all the times of God's protected me from something uh, that I know he did overtly, it makes me wonder, it makes me know that there's probably even many more times that God is constantly protecting me and I don't even know about it, which should make me praise God all the more. But even more important than that, I want, I, when I think God's protection, I almost always equate it with the end of the crisis. If the crisis has ended and I'm out of the crisis and everything is great, that means God has protected me. But if the crisis continues or if I move from crisis to crisis to crisis, that's when I start to think, where's God? Why isn't God with me? Why isn't God protecting me? Has he forgotten about me? And I begin to despair. But listen, look what happens. David, the crisis never ends for him. The crisis never ends. He goes from crisis to crisis to crisis. And in and through all of those, we see God protecting him through each and every one. And so maybe, maybe a better indicator that God is with us and God is protecting us isn't the fact that the crisis has ended 
but the fact that we are still standing in the midst of crisis, that he is supporting us in and through it. That might be, and this suggests, is the real indicator of whether or not God is in our lives protecting us. Second, second thing that shows us is that we have great hope that eventually our crisis will end because God has given us ultimate protection through death in the salvation of Jesus. David here is a beautiful picture of Jesus. No matter what his enemies throw at him, he in his dependence upon God is protected through all of those things. Uh, and in the same way that Jesus, all of his enemies threw everything against him and God brought him through, protected, victorious, and Jesus then won the victory over death for us so that what it means then for us to be in Christ, what it means then for us to have eternal life, which as Jesus says is true about us, is that we can be assured that we are now under God's protection that he is working behind the scenes in the midst of our crisis and that even more than that, he promises to bring us out of the crisis of the fallen world and into the beauty of eternal life. That is our bottom line reality of what Jesus has done for us. And so if God is even now delivering us from death, delivering us from the snares of sin uh, by detaching us one way or another from the harmful lies that we bought into... And he promises to finish that process by bringing us into eternal life. That means that compels us into the beauty of humble submission, which is the third, third and final point, the beauty of humble submission. What is, what is humility? A lot of ideas about what that might be. Humility, uh, is it self-abasement? Is it sorrow for sin? One of my favorite authors, Andrew Murray, has a book called uh, Humility, the Beauty of Holiness, uh, which is one of my favorite books on spiritual power. Uh, he, says that, he says that there's a, there's, a, there's a sense where humility does mean that, self-abasement, sorrow for sin, uh, but he says that too much emphasis on humility being those things Uh, takes our focus away from what humility really is in the Christian life. Listen to what he says. He says, He says, The Christian life has suffered loss where believers have not been distinctly guided to see that even in our relation as creatures, nothing is more natural and beautiful and blessed than to be nothing. So that God may be all or where it has not been made clear that it is not sin that humbles most, but grace. And that it is the soul led through its sinfulness to be occupied with God in His wonderful glory as God, as Creator, and as Redeemer that we truly take the lowliest place before Him. And when we see that humility is something infinitely deeper than just contrition, and accept it as our participation in the life of Jesus, we shall then begin to learn that humility is our true nobility. 
What is he saying? He's saying that humility is our glory. He's saying that humility is God's invitation into the glory and the beauty of eternal quality life now. Uh, He's saying that being in right relationship with God and then having submitted our lives, our little lives to him, the life of Jesus then can flow through us. It's what empowers us to be who we are, which is heavenly nobility. I have two daughters. They're seven and five. They, they're both very much still in the, in the Disney princess stage. I, I, I think we, I, could, I memorized Frozen and Moana and several other Disney movies because they're super into princesses, right? And so one day in our family worship, in our Bible study, we're talking about these things and my, my oldest daughter says, or my young, no, my Victoria, my, 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 my six-year-old daughter, she says, Daddy, if Jesus is king and we're God's children and Jesus is our brother, does that make us princesses? And I said, you know, it hit me. You know, we talk about the king, you know, the king motif and the kingship motif, but it's not our reality. We don't have kings and queens really, so we don't think about it much. But when she said that, I was like, yes, that's true. That's totally true. We are, you are princesses in the kingdom of heaven. We are all princes and princesses in the kingdom of heaven because of what Jesus has done for us. That is our identity above anything else. That's who we are. So with all that in mind, let's go back to the beginning of the story. We see at the end the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul and he divests himself. With all that in mind, now look at what Jonathan does in response to the truth that David is God's anointed, that David will ascend the throne and he will not. Look at verse 18, 3 and 4. It says, And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. In the ancient Near East, the clothes really did make the man. By having that robe, that was a symbol of Jonathan as crown prince. So what he did right there, he wasn't just saying, man, let's be friends. You're awesome. Here's, my, here's some stuff. Here's a gift. Jonathan was divesting himself of his, his, his birthright as crown prince and giving it to David. Uh, he just abdicated the throne. Jonathan, who charged the Philistine gallery, you know, garrison, who was, on the one hand, not afraid to charge against 300,000 trained military, but also Jonathan, who was, with everyone else, afraid to go and fight Goliath because it was, a, it was something bigger than he could do. And he recognized the supernatural element behind that, that David was God's anointed, that David deserved to be on the throne and not him. And so he recognized that 
and he stepped off the throne and he allowed David to be on the throne instead of him. Hallelujah. You have saved me so much better your way. And that's what really God asked us to do. It's real simple. Step off the throne (laughs) and let Jesus be on the throne. Why? Because it's better that way. Because we are susceptible to believing lies that will hurt us. Because his protection is over us even now and his protection promises to see us through death. So we got nothing to worry about. And then we, as we do that, as we submit ourselves to the beauty of humble submission, he promises the life of Jesus will flow through us in power and bless us. And that's what God wants to do. He wants to bless us. To get us in the right position so that his power can flow through us and that we can bless the people around us in the world that he's called us to witness to. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed with your love for us. The glory of Jesus in the cross, he has saved us. His protection is now over us. We are in union with him. We are, in fact, princes and princesses in the heavenly kingdom of Mount Zion. And that will never change. In the present world, Lord, you are shaping us, you are refining us, you are using crisis to shape us into the beauty of Jesus. And although it hurts, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the hard providence. We thank you for calling our attention to the places where our desires cross paths with what's good for us and what honors you as God, as our creator. We thank you for protecting us in all the little areas of life, especially those that we don't even know you're doing it. Help us to recognize that and to trust you. And we pray that you would give us the power of your spirit to enter into the beauty of humble submission so that we might be blessed and that we might be a blessing to others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.